Gore also uses collective intelligence in order to do its performance appraisal process. So rather than have a five-page document in which you're assessing different aspects and you know rating people one to five, Gore uses a very simple process. And, and everyone will be rated by about 20 people and everybody will rate about 20 people. These are people you are closely working with on a day-to-day -day basis. And they just ask one question, just rate this person's contribution to the company. Welcome to the Manage Self Lead Others Leadership Podcast with Nina Sunday for experienced and aspiring people managers. This show helps you explore ways to become a more intentional leader. Each episode, host Nina Sunday speaks with some of the brightest business minds on the planet who share a passion to elevate and transform team culture. Workplace culture hides in plain sight. Is yours flourishing? Join the movement to make your workplace a better place to work. Are you ready? Because it's time to manage self, lead others. I have a return guest today, Rod Collins, former CEO, futurist, and author of Wiki Management, Tools and Practices of a Revolutionary New Management Model and Leadership in a Wiki World, How Leaders Can Leverage the Power of Team Collective Intelligence. In Manage Self, Lead Others Past, episode 72, with Rod Collins, we discussed the existential choice facing organisations, the digital fork in the road. In past episode 59, Rod explained his revolutionary process to craft collective intelligence. Today is an important episode. We give this message to leaders. Nobody is smarter than everybody. Welcome, Rod Collins. Tell us more about, your, you know, a deep dive into how nobody is smarter than everybody. Okay, well, and I came up with the phrase, nobody is smarter than everybody, because it's the design, the fundamental design principle uh, that is the foundation for self-managed peer-to-peer networks. Uh, and the contrasting design principle for centralized hierarchies is trust authority. All right. Uh, and so, so these are two very different ways of designing organizations. All right. Yeah. So let, let's talk about the one everybody's familiar with first. All right. And, and that's the high, centralized hierarchy. Again, their design principle is trust authority. Yeah. And it's worked for a very long time, uh, almost 200 years, going back to the railroads, uh, when, when organizations were first presented with the challenge of managing large groups of people. That was the big challenge that the industrial age brought, because a lot of people may not realize this, but before the industrial age, the average size of a firm was four people. Four. There were four. There weren't large business enterprises. The railroads in the 19th century are the first one. What about textile factories? And is that's the industrial revolution then, is it? Yes. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. That all comes. Yeah. The industrial revolution is what creates the need to organize the works of large numbers of people because and we it started get started with the steam engine. Yep. It's it makes mass production possible. Okay. Right. Before that. Yeah. Firms were four people. Yeah, well, because we had no machines. All you know, everything was labor. There wasn't even typewriters, were there? It was handwritten yeah. stuff. Yeah. Wait, it's almost in incomprehensible these days. Right. The only world that most of us have ever known until the digital age is the industrial age world, mm -hmm. and so we take all of its structures for granted. And so the big challenge was how to organize the work of large numbers of people. 
And Frederick Taylor comes along in the late 19th and early 20th century, comes up with this concept of scientific management. He had a very, very low impression of people. He felt people were fundamentally lazy and that they needed to have their work directed, that uh, you needed to find the elite few intelligent people. Uh, the whole idea of giving them authority to command and control people really in a business context uh, goes back to Frederick Taylor. And it would have now, come some, from, from, from you know, war and armies, you know, that was right. command and control as well. That was the only thing they had that was managing large groups of people. Exactly. And he reached into some of the structures that the, that the Roman Empire used, okay? Oh. But in terms of applying it to business, it, it really traces its root to Frederick Taylor. And it's become so pervasive across the world that Peter Drucker made the observation that the most significant American contribution to the world was not the Constitution, it was scientific management, that that's had more of an impact in the world than even the American Constitution. And Can I, I just point important. out for the new middle managers in the room, Peter Drucker, my hero, he's passed on now, is of the top 50 thinkers in the world, number one. And number yeah. two after that is Charles Handy, which we're fortunate to still have alive. And we've got a past episodes of a, a conversation with him. But uh, Drucker's famous quote is, what is it, Stra uh, culture, beats strategy for breakfast. That's right. That's one of his many good quotes. Another, another one of his is the best way to, um, the best way to prepare for the future is to create it. Yeah. Well, the best way to manage the future is to create it. That's yeah, the grandfather which, of, of, of uh, which, which, which we're going to come back to. Okay. Because yeah. hierarchies don't do a very good job of that. No. So anyway, let's, let's, so that's a little bit of background on how we get there. So this organizational structure that we all take for granted, that just is all over public and private enterprises is, is design principle is trust authority. And what it does is it leverages the intelligence of an elite few people they do strategy through central planning because the basic notion is that you can plan your way into the future and that knowledge about the past is the best preparation for tomorrow. And that's why we rely upon experts. We give these experts command and control authority so they can drive ideological conformity, which is getting everybody on the same page. And the end goal of the centralized top-down hierarchy in terms of workers is compliance. If people will, they, the whole structure is designed so people will comply with the directors of the managers. Because this no whole wonder. idea of quality assurance and you can't trust people, uh, you know, because they might do their own thing and you want quality control, but there's a, there's a trade-off, isn't there? Yeah. Yep, yep, there is. Now, one of the things that happens with centralized top-down hierarchies is it kind of dampens the human spirit yeah. because it divides yeah. the organization into the powerful and the powerless. And the subordinates feel powerless. Many times their voices are silenced. And so it's not surprising that uh, that management surveys continually find that roughly two out of every three workers is disengaged in their work. And so they're, you know, they're going in, doing a job, collecting a paycheck. Now, there is an alternative model out there. And it has a very different design principle. And that design principle is nobody is smarter than everybody. And when that's your design principle, you don't leverage just elite intelligence, 
you leverage the collective intelligence of everyone in the organization. And what you want to do, those organizations are able to design, to blend the knowledge of experts and non-experts, which is oftentimes where creativity and innovations come. It's taking something an expert knows, but combining it with a new idea a non-expert might have, putting them together and wow, um, uh, we've got something new here. They don't do central planning for strategy. They do iterative discovery. And so they're continually learning, all right? And they welcome diversity of opinion because that is the engine that fuels the collective intelligence. And they're not working towards uh, compliance, but rather agreement. Because you see, in a peer-to-peer -peer network, they're self-managed. And what characterizes them is, and this will surprise our audience, they have no bosses. Yeah, bosses but you're going to give not... us a few uh, examples of companies that are doing this and, and making a success of this. Yeah, so in in the uh, in the book I'm I'm working on now that should be published in uh, in 2023 by the title "Nobody Smarter Than Everybody," I highlight three companies that that adopted this management model at their birth. They're all decades old. They're all market leaders and highly successful. And why are they market leaders? Because they can do what hierarchies can't, which is becoming more and more important in today's rapidly changing world. They can adapt to change. Yeah. Because hierarchies are designed to maintain the status quo. In the 20th century, business models could last for 40 years. The secret to sustainable competitive advantage was operational efficiency, to live a high quality of what I do best at low cost, at such a low cost, I keep all other people out of my market. And if you can run that for 40 years, that's quite a, uh, uh, you know, that's quite a wonderful formula. Well, business models don't last 40 years anymore. No, well, so, I, I found out in the year 2000 that if you're running your business the same way as you did five years ago, you're not in business, you're going out of business. So yeah. that was 20 years ago. Right. Well, another Peter Drucker quote, if you don't know innovation today, you don't know business. Because in the 21st century, the sustainable competitive advantage is not operational efficiency. It's the capacity to adapt to change. Yeah. It, you know, it's it's the old uh, Darwinian principle. Um, it is, the, you know, the fittest who survive are those who adapt, not necessarily those who are the strongest or even the smartest. It's those who can adapt. That's who. That's what it means to be fit, and that applies to organizations today. And so, why is on, it? Let us let us in on one of these companies. I'm, I'm okay, right. so let's up. talk about the first company to really do this was W.L. Gore and Associates, and they're the makers of Gore-Tex. So Gore worked for the DuPont company, and he noticed that the best conversations happened in the carpool, yeah. not in the office, when people got away from the chains of command. That's where the best discussions happened. That's where innovative ideas were talked about. And so he decided to leave DuPont and start his own company, literally in the basement of his house. And, and his the, the, the picture he had in mind is he wanted to create a company that was like his carpool all day long. Oh, isn't that and lovely? he said the only way that he could do that 
is if no one in his new company, including he, the founder, would have the authority to kill a good idea or keep a bad idea alive. That's a lesson for everybody. Anybody in the organization would be free to bring forth an idea and no one could shut their voice down. So in order to do that, he knew his company could not have any bosses. Right. And so in networks, work isn't organized in functional departments. It's organized in cross-functional teams. Yeah. And these teams are self-organized and they're self-managed. So today, if you are hired to work at Gore, you're not hired into a position. You are hired into the company. Yeah. And your first task is you have to find a team to work on. Oh, isn't that wonderful? That's your responsibility. Now, to help you along, they will assign you, this is my word, not theirs, a guardian angel. Right. For about 90 days, who will introduce you to the people, you know, and and, kind of, you know, proverbially hold your hand until you can get your feet down, because this is an entirely new system from what anybody has ever been used to, all right? You know what, well, that's another principle in, in management, which is get first get the right people on the bus. Yeah. Then yeah. work out what seat they're going to have. And and that's just built into the DNA. In yeah, the that's core. right. Yeah. And so people, you, they find a team to work on. Anybody is free to start a new team. So if someone comes up with an idea for a new product, for example, for example, you know, when the person came up with the idea for elixir guitar strings, okay, what if we coat these strings so that the bodily fluids don't degrade them in six weeks, but it can last for a year with good tonality. Well, somebody had that idea and they didn't have to check with any bosses. They didn't have to run it up a chain of command. They just began to talk to other people and say, do you want to be on a team that's going to revolutionize guitar strings? And so they got people together and uh, they developed their ideas. Now, interestingly, you don't get money right away. You have to earn budget. And so while you're free to pursue ideas, okay, you don't necessarily have money to be funding to begin with. Uh, And so you do get a wage, though. In order to get funding, okay, which you wind up having a project, yes. You develop your idea. Mm. And you will present it uh, uh, in a forum in which there'll be a significant number of people who will listen to ideas, perhaps from several projects. And at the end of those uh, pitch sessions, if you will, uh, the people who are sitting in the room might be given something like six green dots, green because that's the color of money. And they might be told, (laughs) every one of these dots is worth $10,000. And so you've got six dots. Would you invest in any of these projects? And you can pocket your dots. If you don't think any of them are worth it, you don't have to vote them. And so this is another way you use collective intelligence to decide what projects are ready enough to go for funding. So what you see here, there isn't a single individual or a chain of command that is, you know, looking at this, any one of which along that line could kill a project. Okay. No, this is a collective intelligence exercise. And then if the group decides this should go on for funding, there'll be another team that will uh, decide how much funding to assign it. And so through this simple two-step process using collective intelligence, this is how things get funded. 
Now, another interesting dynamic at war, and we kind of alluded to this, when do you begin a project? When enough people show up at the meeting, they have a very, very efficient process for ending projects. And that is when enough people stop showing up at the meeting. Because at Gore, you're compensated based on your contributions. And you'll be, and Gore also uses collective intelligence in order to do its performance appraisal process. So rather than have a five-page document in which you're assessing different aspects and you know rating people one to five, Gore uses a very simple process. And, and everyone will be rated by about 20 people and everybody will rate about 20 people. These are people you are closely working with on a day-to-day basis. And they just they ask one question, just rate this person's contribution to the company. Because, and, and again, they use collective intelligence in order to do the performance appraisal. Now, this may seem a bit counterintuitive to people. What? Just one question? Just rate their contribution? If you think about it, it's kind of brilliant. Because at the beginning of the year, especially in fast-changing times, you don't know what's necessary in January to be successful in December. Things change. But oftentimes, these performance appraisals are rigid. And they don't necessarily capture everything that contributes to value in the marketplace. Well, this intuitive process that uses collective intelligence is probably more empirically sound than these five-page documents uh, rating all of these discrete items. And so you can see how collective intelligence is continually used throughout the Gore process as it does day-to-day work. Now, one important thing to point out, when Bill Gore first started this, this worked very, very well until the company grew to about 200 people. And then things started to break down a bit. And he began to get some insight into why large companies become hierarchies. Because above 200 people, you start needing needing structure. But he didn't want to become a hierarchy. And so he thought, well, if everything was going well until we hit 200 people, I'm just going to take this group of 200 and divide it in half. 100 people each, and I'm going to make them autonomous units. And that is how this 11,000-person company today still maintains its bossless self-management structure because Gore is made up of of a collection of units that average about 150 people. Now, a few years later, after Gore stumbled on on this dynamic, uh, a sociologist by the name of Robin Dunbar, somewhere I believe in the early 90s, um, did some studies with, uh, uh, with, with primates, including humans, to find out what's the maximum number of people with whom you can maintain steady relationships and know whether these people are friendly or hostile to you. And it turns out that number for human beings is 150. Gore stumbled on this before Dunbar did, and so he he discovered Dunbar's number before Dunbar. So, so they let it go to 200 uh, so that you can, when you divide in half, you'll have about 100 people each. Yeah, yeah. And, and this is, uh, so th- these are some practical examples of what work looks like when you when nobody's smarter than everybody is your design principle, when you're leveraging collective intelligence, and when there are no bosses. Now, one of, I want to point out one other incredible benefit of this. 
networks compared to hierarchies change the fundamental dynamics for how intelligence and how power works in the organization. If you think about it, an organization has three key dimensions, intelligence, power, performance. Intelligence is how we solve problems. Uh, power is, how, is, is the capacity to do work. And uh, performance is accomplishing results. <clears throat> in hierarchies, you're leveraging the intelligence of an elite few, and you give them command and control authority to shut down dissenting views. When you do that, you create an incredible intelligence blind spot that could be fatal to a company. And when you leverage the elite few, you're leveraging their unconscious cognitive biases. And if people can't push back against that because of command and control authority, there's no way the organization can correct for those biases until they present themselves in terms of poor performance in the marketplace. In networks, you don't have these unconscious biases because diversity of opinion is welcome. Nobody's voice can be shut down. And so because of that, people have to work through differences until they can reach mutual agreement in order to go on. And the process of doing that negates out the cognitive biases that different points of view bring to the table. And through the process of agreement, you wind up combining the strengths of both sets of ideas. Very rarely does any of us have the truth. The truth, we, we all have elements of the truth, even people on different sides of the fence. The, the reason that they can have a compelling argument is because they are, they do have some element of the truth in their thinking. So if you have a process that can, can call out the truths, the benefits of two different apparently paradoxical points of view, oftentimes that's your secret to finding common ground, but more importantly, a higher level solution than any single individual could come up with. And that's the power of collective intelligence. Well, I, I'm if I'm a manager and I'm employed and I am in an organization that does have a hierarchy, I'm just going to feel like, well, there's no hope for us. <laughs> uh, what, what, how can somebody who's not the boss, not the owner, founder owner, but is, um, is employed and managing people, how can they apply some of these principles, even if they can't remove the hierarchies because they're not, they're not the owner? So if you're a manager, you can voluntarily do this. Okay. So you can, you can bring people together, uh, especially people with different points of view. You can use techniques that people see outside facilitators use. Uh, so for example, uh, you can have everybody present their idea, but nobody can comment on it. Or, and, and after everyone's presented, you can say, ask clarifying questions. Right. So all you can do is try and understand the other point of view, regardless of whether you agree or disagree. And once you get through that listening process, now you can begin to open up the discussion. And it's likely to proceed a lot better than the way we normally do, which is we come in with our idea, we talk over other people, we're not understanding, and we're immediately, and the other thing too is we're rushing yeah, to solutions. This, uh, you know, this Be, um, peppering yes. of questions and having to justify, and it's not right. done in a way that is like people are playing devil's advocate and they're not really embracing the spirit of the idea and even springboarding it. 
so that's how you can make your organization more intelligent. Now, yeah. if you if you move in this direction, okay, yeah. as a leader, now we can get into the second dimension, which is power. And this is where there's a radical transformation of the organization. Because in the hierarchy, power is a function of force. Yeah. It's coercive power. The ability to command and control another human being is Dominant. the ability to legitimately exercise coercive power over them. No matter how benevolent you may be, you've got that, okay? Yeah. yeah. In a network, nobody has coercive power over another person. Right. And so if a manager puts this in place, they have to put aside their ability to use this coercive power to process ideas and trust the wisdom of the crowd. That can be a little bit scary, but if you have the wherewithal to do it, I think you will find it incredibly valuable. And that certainly was my own experience when I was in a similar situation as you described. Now, what happens is power in networks taps into an entirely different, different aspect. It's not about force, it's about energy. It's power as energy. And uh, another way to state it, in hierarchies, it's about power over people. In networks, it's about power with people. Now, when you have power over people, the organization is, the, is really segregated into two classes, those who have power and those who don't, the powerful and the powerless. Again, two-thirds of people feel disengaged in their work, they're probably experiencing powerlessness. That's why they're disengaged. In a network, there are no powerless people. Everyone is powerful. Everyone's voice is honored. Anyone can initiate a project. Uh, and, and anyone can make a contribution uh, and doesn't have to ask anybody's permission to do so. And so now as an individual in a network, the only way I'm going to get things done is I'm really going to need to partner with other people. Because work and projects in the marketplace are bigger than one person. And so you're forced to develop this dimension of power with people. And that type of power is generated towards the marketplace. And so that helps you to accomplish results. Too often power in hierarchies is directed to inside their four walls. Who in the organization has power over whom? Where in the network, it's how are we building power so we bring it into the marketplace so that we can uh, provide customer value that results and generates profits for the firm. If intelligence is about our ability to solve problems, while hierarchies are handicapped because they amplify unconscious biases, and then power is more about power over, so that's a diminished form of power, it's a lot more difficult in hierarchies to accomplish results, which may explain why in our rapidly changing world, longevity on the Fortune 500 is dropping rapidly. Nobody's there for 40 years anymore. Yeah. Right? Now in networks, the uh, intelligence is expanded because you are, rather than expanding control as happens in hierarchies, Networks are designed to expand consciousness. Let's discover what we don't know we don't know. And then since power is power with, that's um, and, and based on energy, it's a, it, if you will, it's a more powerful form of power. And so you are more likely to achieve and accomplish results. 
So give me a picture again of a network where we've got an organization. Look, we might have a small company, uh, people listening to this, or we might have an organization with thousands. But you're talking about individual companies networking with other individual companies that perhaps are not com- competitors, maybe clients or su- or, or suppliers. Is that, that, is that what you mean by a network? No, a network is in terms of what it looks like inside an organization. So if you have a networked organization, you're a team of teams to use oh. General Stanley McChrystal's language. And okay. so rather than be organized by departments, you're organized by cross-functional teams. These teams typically have anywhere from seven to 12 people. Uh, Jeff Bezos has a... a uh, uh, a moniker or analogy called the two pizza rule. He said a team should never be larger than can be fed by two pizzas. Isn't that great? Right? You know, this also gets over the silo effect as well, this us and them feeling between yep. divisions. And the way to overcome it is for people from different divisions to be working right. on projects together. Right. Now, when these teams are cross-functional, then anything can, aff- that these different aspects that can affect each other are able to react in real time. When you work in silos, oftentimes you don't fi- find out what you've done in your silo affects another silo until you're way down the road in terms of doing work. And interestingly, a lot of people will say, they'll take it personally and say, well, you held this back by design when you really didn't, you just didn't know. Yeah. Well, if you have a cross-functional team, people can react in real time. That helps save both time and money. Now, another aspect of networks. So you've got these, you have these team units and that's, that's, uh, and they're working on a project basis. Now, how do you cross pollinate? So each team might elect a representative who participates on a team across the teams. And so you may have 12 people on this cross pollinated team that are representatives from 12 other project teams. And so this is how cross pollination can happen. It's it's also called eavesdropping. It's in other words, if you're working inside another team, you've you're on the grapevine. You can hear hear what what comments are being made, and it's like then you can bring that back. That's to- right. Plus, you have the informal, natural serendipity yes. in a network. Anybody can talk to anybody. In a hierarchy, that's not so. If you talk to your boss's boss without talking to your boss first, that could be career threatening. Oh yes, isn't that that's so limiting that whole concept? And so, information in a hierarchy doesn't flow freely. As a matter of fact, it's got this concept of need to know. In a network, information has to flow freely because everybody needs to know whatever they need to know to do their work, and they're the ones who determine what they need to know. You know, we've got got a current poll going at the moment, and I'll put it in the show notes, where we've we've listed 11 toxic behaviours of a manager. What's the one that, the the top three that gripe you? And currently at the top is withholding information, little knowledge sharing, uh, even more so than bullying. (laughs) Yeah. In in networks, everyone has the right to access to information. Everyone. Yeah. Okay. Now, let me give you... Another practical example, I think that will help out listeners here. Yeah. Um, in uh, in the Netherlands, uh, there is a uh, part of their health infrastructure are home health nurses. These are a very big part of the, of the Netherlands health infrastructure. And there's a gentleman by the name of Joost de Blak who worked for a traditional home health services firm 
who thought there's got to be a better way to do this. He didn't think that that the way they were working was was efficient, and worse yet, it wasn't contributing to the quality of health of the patients. And what things that disturbed him is that when assignments were made, they were done for what I might call accounting or analytical reasons. And so uh, people would assign, uh, you know, Nurse Bridget to visit patient Joan on on Monday, and then patient Joan would have Nurse John visit on Wednesday, and on Friday there would be a third nurse. All right, um, because pe- they were dis- they were distributing the nurses to minimize the cost of travel uh, by car. Well, DeBach says, I'm going to leave here. I have a better model and I'm going to try it out. So what he does is he organizes the nurses who work for his new company into teams of 12. They are assigned 50 patients. These teams are fully autonomous to manage every aspect of administering and providing health to these 50 patients. They have their own budgets. They're free to hire and fire people accordingly. It all rests with team. What happened was he reduced the cost by almost 40%. Because when the teams assigned it, they had nurse Bridget visit patient Joan all the time. And what happened was because it improved the human experience of the interaction, since nurse Bridget gets to know patient Joan, the patient recovers far faster and fewer patients wind up in the hospital. Right. So quality of care increases and costs go down. Today, this startup, okay, employs 70% of the home health care nurses wow. in the Netherlands. Isn't that interesting? From startup, another, another market leader did it all because it set up an organization without bosses. And obviously, the nurses love it. And start with the question, there has to be a better way to do this. And that's probably the question any leader can be asking themselves now, where there's a bottleneck or a delay, What is, is there a better way to do this? Yes. And there and is a better way. people, not just themselves. That's right. Well, Rod, I want to thank you for sharing all of this, uh, starting from the history pre-industrial revolution, but also now into what is future forward, uh, ways to organise a company that will uh, access the collective intelligence of people and also give people, individuals, more meaning and purpose and boost the morale of companies. Yeah. Now, companies who, I realize most of the people listening to this are probably in traditional companies and uh, I, I, you know, one of the things I do is, is companies who want to experience what is it like to work in a network structure, if only on a temporary basis. Uh, I, I, I do these collective intelligence workshops where if they can get a microcosm of their business in a room, usually for two days is what we need to mine the collective intelligence. Those two days of dedicated time will save months of work oftentimes. So are you saying that you actually do facilitate this for companies? I, I Yes, I go in and do these collective intelligence sessions. And usually I'm called in when they have an intractable problem they can't solve and they're under a time deadline, okay? Yeah. And these sessions within, within 48 hours will come up with the game plan that solves the problem 
and gets it done on time. Yeah, I'll tell you one little funny story. Uh, I and the co-facilitator were the only non-PhD or PhD candidates in the room. So these are very bright people, okay? Yeah. And they were very, very skeptical of this notion of collective intelligence. But they were desperate because they were about to lose their contract. And so they figured, well, we got nothing to lose. Let's go through this. Well, at the end of the day, they had their solution. They did get their contract. And a number of people came up at the end of the session and said, you know, I was very skeptical about this, but this was really interesting what happened here today. And what these highly intelligent people saw is they could tap into an even higher level of intelligence when instead of a collection of individual brains, they became a network of interconnected brains. Yeah. And do you have a website? I do. It's rodcollins.net. That's R-O-D-C-O-L-L-I-N-S.net. And uh, that links to my Substack columns and to my uh, my books and uh, uh, and also uh, uh, links to my speaking engagement page. And we'll, we'll, we'll put it in the show notes. Rod, okay. I want to thank you for your time today. It's always amazing speaking with you. It, it kind of... Uh, raises my my awareness of uh you know as a leader what you can do with your people and i trust that's the same with the people that have been listening today in fact get in touch with me on linkedin get in touch with rod tell us uh how, how you react to this uh episode because it's always nice to hear from people and uh also you can put a comment in youtube so thank you so much for your uh for your time today rod nina thank you it's always wonderful to visit with you thank you so much my guest today was Rod Collins, author of Wiki Management, former CEO and futurist. And we were speaking about Nobody is Smarter Than Everybody, the title of Rod Collins' upcoming book. Nina Sunday is on a mission, helping leaders transform culture. Nina travels from Brisbane, Australia for in-person presentations Australia-wide. Certified virtual presenter, Nina Sunday presents virtually, globally, for any time zone. To book Nina Sunday CSP to speak at your conference, visit ninasunday.com to request a proposal. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.